The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. It sure is nice to have the student group lead us in worship. It's always exciting to watch them grow. They're a great representation of our student ministry. They give us a little glimpse into how they keep growing when we're not looking. And it's just like every now and then you go, man, these kids still grow and my kids are still growing. But as we study the book of Genesis, I uh, was thinking this morning about a, uh, a truth that's just pretty much a universal truth. How many of you are the babies in their family? You're the youngest. Isn't it universally true that we are God's favored children? Yes, thank you. All right, see, it's a uni- everyone knows. You laugh because you know what's true. Uh, I was the baby until my, until my youngest brother, Marshall, tried to show up and become the baby eight years later. But I still claim to be the baby in the family growing up. And as the baby, of course, I was perfect. I never made a mistake. All I did was learn lessons from my older siblings. Anybody remember that as the baby? You watched your older sibling get totally busted on something like they did something something wrong and you totally watched the whole thing go down you saw them you saw how their scheme didn't work and so you learned from that and then you saw how they got disciplined and you said I definitely don't want that and so that's why we're perfect because we learn from our older siblings mistakes and uh, sometimes we learn that we don't want to sin like they did other times we learned how to just sin smarter than they did and uh, so we learned a lot from them I'm just kidding I'm perfect my kids I've got parents here I've got two brothers here I've got kids and a wife here so I'm gonna hold this facade up that I'm perfect all right y'all just go with me on that. So what we're looking at today is Cain and Abel. This is an older sibling and a younger sibling, and and we're going to do something like that. We're going to learn lessons from the life of Cain. That's what the Bible does for us many times, is it lays out before us lives that others have lived so that we can learn from their lives, that God teaches us a a God-inspired lesson. Uh, And so we're going to look at five lessons from the life of Cain. If you haven't gotten this, uh, it's called This Week at Norris Ferry. We send it out weekly. You can text NFCC Info to 97000. Again, that's NFCC Info to 97000, and we'll send this to you weekly. This week, we have fill-in-the-blanks for you, interactive listening, lessons one through five. So we're going to work through this text, and we're going to pull out five lessons from the life of Cain, and I pray that God will teach us how to not make the mistakes that Cain made and to follow his example when he got it right. Lord, would you help us this morning learn the lessons of Cain? I pray, Lord, that we will deal with sin properly the way that you teach us from this text as we come into your presence this morning teach us from the life of Cain it's in Christ's name we pray amen all right we're just going to work through the text and pull out five lessons from the life of Cain look at verse 1 in Genesis 4 we're in Genesis 4 and we're going to look at the whole chapter Genesis 4 1 it says now Adam knew Eve his wife so they came together and she conceived and bore Cain saying I have gotten a man With the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. So here we have God fulfilling his promise to bless Eve with offspring, to bless Eve with seed or children. And that becomes a very important theme in the Bible that was introduced 
in Genesis 3.15. So let's review a little bit. We had a week last week where we did a missional focus, which was wonderful. So let me review where we were before that. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see this picture of this incredibly good, perfect creator God who is seeing what man's needs, what man needs and providing all that humanity needs. I mean, God is the star of the show. God is trustworthy. He's good. He's loving. He's kind. He's gracious. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's the creator. I mean, you can't get more expression of the ultimate God that there is, that he created everything. He's seeing what man needs and doesn't need, and he's providing it. He is good. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. And so all, all that we've been seeing is how trustworthy this God is. And this God said, just trust me, obey me. Obedience is the fruit of a heart of trust, that if we know God is faithful, if we know God is good, and we know he is providing what's good, then this will show up in our lives as obedience. Obedience is the fruit of trust or of faith. All throughout this text, we're going to talk about trust, and and we've been using that phrase, trust and obey, as the, the main idea of what we've seen so far. God says, my plan is to fill this earth with my glory. Now, what is the glory of God on this earth? We've talked about it to bring it in concrete, practical terms. The glory of God on the earth is God's mission. That doesn't mean God's going to do some weird stuff in the sky and some nebulous concept of glory. The glory of God all throughout the face of the earth is God's people trusting him and that showing by their obedience to him. They know he is good, they know he is gracious, they know he is kind, he is their everything, and therefore they show it with their obedience. And then we get to chapter 3, the fall, and what happens is they refuse to trust God. He said, don't eat of that one tree, which was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, trust that I know what's good for you and what's not good for you, and don't disobey me. And so they fail to do that, and that begins the unraveling of all of God's blessings. That Adam and Eve are exiled from the promise, I mean, from the, the paradise land that God had blessed them with. He gave them all that they needed, and he wasn't holding good from them. He wasn't keeping blessings from them. He wasn't deceiving them. The only thing that he was keeping them from was, was division and divisiveness and destruction and guilt and shame. That's what he was keeping them from. He was keeping them from evil and lavishing them with blessings. And so the picture of the fall is a picture of tremendous foolishness. Why wouldn't you trust them, Adam and Eve? Why wouldn't you obey this incredibly good God? And then chapter 3, verse 15, we see the incredible promise of grace. And this is the first earliest picture of the gospel that is that is the storyline of the Bible. God comes and says to the woman, you're going to have a seed, an offspring, a child, and that child will defeat or crush the serpent, will defeat the evil one, though his heel will be wounded or bruised in the process. And we as readers who've read the whole Bible know that's the earliest picture of Jesus who defeats Satan, though he is wounded in the process. He's hung on the cross. He gives his life intentionally as the blood sacrifice for our sins, defeating Satan. But that 
offspring, that promised seed of the woman who will be the Jesus, who will be the Messiah, is the storyline that we want to keep our eye on as we work through the, the Bible because it leads us all the way to Jesus and his arrival. And so in 3.15, it says you will have children and you will, because of sin, their work will be frustrating. They will work by the sweat of their face. And, and this is all described as what's gonna happen. And then we get to chapter four and here we see the first children. Adam and Eve conceive and they have Cain. And she says, I have gotten man with the help of the Lord. And so here's God keeping his promise. He said he would bless them with children and now they are. That's what the word of God does. God says he's gonna do something. He does it. Our faith grows. He's trustworthy. He's good. You can trust him. Now, keep continuing to read in verse two. Now, Abel was keeper of the sheep. The younger was the keeper of the sheep, so we'll call him a cattle farmer. And Cain was a worker of the ground, so he was an agricultural farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. And so the also seems to think that these are equal offerings, They came at the first offering being offered. Later on, we see in the scriptures, in the law that God gives, these people become known as Israel. God gives them a law and says, here's how you bring offerings. Here's the type of offerings. And we see already woven into the fabric of society, God's worship is part of it. And so Cain and Abel bring their offerings to the Lord. And so in a sense, this is kind of our first glimpse of a worship service outside the garden. This is the first glimpse of a worship service where sin has contaminated relationships. Sin has affected the ground. It has affected all of society. And so two brothers, Cain and Abel, come to their worship service and then something goes down. And this would arrest our attention as readers because we're thinking, is Cain the promised seed? In 3.15, God just promised that she will have a seed and he will crush Satan. And then we say, okay, Cain's the oldest, is Cain the seed? Well, listen to what it says. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And that's shocking because, whoa, wait a minute. What's the difference here? Why does God not accept Cain and his offering, but he does accept Abel and his offering? There's a little debate over why some focus more specifically on the offering and they say, well, Cain brought this kind. It wasn't first fruits and all that. I disagree with that. I think that it's clear that the text doesn't focus in on the type of offering. What does the text spend time focusing in on? On Cain himself. And so what we see here is the problem is not the offering. The problem problem is with the offerer. The problem is with Cain, that when, when he says that he, he focuses, I mean, when he says he did not have regard for Cain and his offering, the offering was not acceptable because Cain was not acceptable. The rest of the narrative goes on to reveal the problem is with Cain. The problem is revealed with what comes out of Cain's mouth in the very next verses. The Bible says that out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. The Bible says that our actions reflect what truly is going on in our heart. By their fruits, you shall know them. 
How do you know a tree is a pear tree and not an apple tree? You look at the fruit. The fruit reveals the true nature of the roots. And so what we're going to see is the author focuses our attention on Cain, on what he says, on what he does. And the problem is Cain's heart is bad. And so God has no regard. God does not accept Cain's, does not accept Cain, and therefore he does not accept Cain's offering. Look at verse 5. We see what comes out of Cain. So when God reveals Cain, that's not acceptable to me. What does Cain do? So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So here we get a glimpse into Cain's heart. Now think about this scene. Cain comes into the worship place of God, into the very presence of his creator, who has done nothing but lavish him with grace and love and goodness and display his holiness and has provided for him. God is nothing but the perfect father. Cain comes into his presence and God says, there's a problem, Cain. This is not acceptable. And Cain says, really? How dare you not accept my worship? How dare you not find me acceptable? Cain gets angry at this God who reveals to Cain that there's a problem. When we come to worship, when I sing those first songs every week, you know what's going on in my heart every week? Is it's just like like this little layer of idolatry has built up over my heart for a week. And it takes those first few songs of singing and remembering the grace of God through Jesus Christ, ripping these little idols out of my heart, ripping these false lesser affections from me and reminding me, no, yeah, Jesus is my greatest treasure. And it's painful and it's like, golly, every week, Lord, every week I come in here and I have to be start all over again. And yes, But what shouldn't happen when we come into here to worship God, when we come into the presence of a holy God and the scriptures reveal his holiness and it reveals to us sin, when you are convicted of sin in the presence of God, oh, oh, be afraid if your reaction is one of anger towards God. What should be, what I think Abel would do, I don't think Abel showed up in any better condition based on what I see in scriptures, It's not like Abel showed up all perfect and innocent, but Abel, as he was convicted of sin, he had faith. He put trust in God. He once again was washed, cleansed by God's promised perfections, God's promised redeemer. And so you have this complete different reactions. In Hebrews 11.4, the writer of Hebrews tells us how faith approached, how, how Abel approached God. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. It was his faith that made his sacrifice acceptable, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. God accepted his gift. This was a commendation on Abel's heart, on his attitude, on his motives to say, yes, you are in the right place Your heart is right as you offer this offering to me. 
And so living in a broken world where we go each week filled with sinful desires, where idols are constantly sneakily coming in and capturing portions of our worship and our heart, where we give ourselves to other things, that, to lesser gods. And every time we come into the presence of God, be it a quiet time daily, be it a community group, or be it come in here and you enter into a time with your brothers and sisters to worship God, God is going to reveal sin in our heart. And he's going to say, that's not acceptable. And what this text is telling me and telling you is that we can't come in here and play games and think that offering God some religious activity is going to satisfy him or that it's going to earn something with God. Putting something in the offering plate doesn't give me a little rung higher on the ladder of righteousness. Coming and worshiping every Sunday and going to community group and having good attendance doesn't earn favor with God. Serving in the children's ministry doesn't give me blessing with God because I was bad, but now I did something good and now he's happy with me. That's not the gospel at all. The, life, the lesson of Cain and Abel is that we see God is looking at the heart. God is looking deeper than the outward activity. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord see, it says, The Lord sees, not as man sees. What do you and I see? We see the outside. We see the behavior. But what does the Lord see? It says, but the Lord looks on the heart. Hosea 6, verse 6, the Lord says, For I desire steadfast love not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And the idea there is not, God's not saying, I don't want your sacrifice. He commands them to offer sacrifices. But the point is, it goes deeper than that. I want the sacrifices to come out of a heart of steadfast love for the Lord, out of a heart of great desire for the Lord, of intimate, personal, trusting knowledge of the Lord. Abel's faith is not, I agree to a statement of faith. It's not, look, I got a factual understanding and I checked that box and so God's good with me and now I perform some religious duty and God's happy with me. That's completely missing the point. His faith is a trust. It's a knowing the God of creation. It's knowing his goodness, his grace, his glory, his blessings, his kindness, his favor. And knowing how glorious God is, he says, what can I do to sacrifice? What can I do to reflect how glorious you are? What can I give? What can I say? Who can I be? How can I live? And that's the worship God desires. That's the offering that God desires. That we should not be conformed to this world, but we should be living sacrifices. Our lives should be offerings because we've grasped how glorious and how good God is. And so in response, we bring an offering. That's only going to happen when our heart has been purified by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lesson one from the life of Cain, God only accepts worship from a pure heart. God only accepts worship from a pure heart. And what we'll see at the end of this message, what we see throughout the Bible is that pure heart is a gift from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That that's the, that's the overwhelming gratitude that fuels our worship. Why do I give in the offering plate? Because God's given me everything. 
Why do I serve the children? Because God has served me in Jesus Christ. Why do I sing songs? Because it's in my heart and it expresses my feelings and my emotions and my thoughts about God and his goodness and his grace. I worship, I offer, I sacrifice because God first offered and sacrificed himself for me on the cross through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when you come to the service, please don't come thinking that your being here is earning something with God. That's self-righteousness. And that's what I think is going on in Cain's heart. How do you respond to the news that God doesn't accept your worship when it's not coming from a pure heart of gratitude, a pure heart of faith? Let's look how Cain responded when the sin of his heart was revealed. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? I love this line. Why are you angry? Why, why has your face fallen? It's like he's saying, what are you mad at? What are you, what are you downcast about? Why are you feeling sorry for yourself? You mad at me? Because you came into my holy, righteous presence, God says. And he's like, and it revealed your wickedness. It revealed your sin. And you're going to get mad at me? You're going to feel sorry for yourself? You're going to have your face downcast and you're going to be sullen? And then he simply says in verse 7, listen, why are you mad? If you do well, will you not be accepted? That's so simple. It's so pure. Cain comes into the presence of God with sin in his heart, and he's angry, he's sullen, and God says, why are you mad at me? If you do well, if you just repent of this sin, will I not restore you? Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this warning, friends. If you don't, if you don't do well, do well meaning if you don't confess that sin, turn from it, cast it on Jesus at the cross, he says, if you do that simply, will, it, will you not be restored? But if you don't, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. These are scary words. It's like people who have these pet tigers that were all like, that thing's cute when it's this big. That is a wild animal. You don't bring wild animals into the house, raise them as pets, feed the little tiger, watch its fangs grow big, feed it with meat, teach it to eat meat, and say, yeah, look at this cute little thing. And then all of a sudden it gets angry and its wild actions come out and it devours your arm. This is not the plan. This is the way sin is. This is the picture that God is saying to Cain. Cain, listen, you've come into my presence and you see you have sin crouching in your heart. You see that sin in your heart. It's hiding and you are treating it like a little pet. And you are feeding it and you are raising it and you're watching its fangs grow and you're denying the danger of that sin. And let me tell you, if you don't confess it, it is a beast. And it will raise up and it will devour you. 
And so the lesson of Cain is be aware. Unconfessed sin seeks to destroy you. Unconfessed sin seeks to destroy you. In New American Commentary, Matthew says, sin has a pervasive power that seizes occasion to enslave its victim. Let me say that again. Sin has a pervasive power that seizes occasion to enslave its victim. Sin is not to be toyed with. It is a gift from God to come into the presence of God and for Him to reveal the sin that is in your heart. To come into quiet time every morning to open your word and to feel the resistance. To feel that every ounce of your being says, I don't want to be in the presence of God. And God says, you better thank me that I'm revealing the sin in your heart. And let me warn you, he says, that sin, if it's not dealt with, it is seeking to destroy you. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is not to be taken lightly. Sin must be dealt with and it must be dealt with immediately. How do we deal with it? We confess it. Confess means admit, agree, agree with God. This is sin. Yeah, this is sin. Not to get mad at God, but to say, yeah, this is, this is not pleasing to you, Lord. When, he, when we are confronted with our sin, when we look into the mirror and we see the ugly reflection of all the sin in our life, and the Word of God does that, and God's holiness does that, it reveals our imperfections and our sin and our rebellion. The only response is to say, yes, Lord, show me how, how wicked I am, Lord. Remind me that you cover that with your grace, with the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's that grace and that undeserved forgiveness that, that I did nothing to deserve. It's that covering of the blood of my sin that, that God says, now I see you as righteous. I see you as holy. I see you as perfect. I don't condemn you for your sin. I forgive you because of Jesus. That is what fuels the genuine worship. That is what fuels the hatred of sin. That is what fuels the repentance. That is what fuels the waging of war against those sins. That is what fuels my genuine offering to the Lord. What is the condition of your heart today? As you come here into this place of worship and you are reminded of the glories of God and your own sin, how do you respond? Do you Admit it humbly. Does it bring you to your knees and thank God once again for his grace and his forgiveness? Or do you puff up in anger? Do you feel sorry for yourself? Do you have a self-righteous, prideful heart like Cain that says, I deserve better? Don't play with sin. It's seeking to destroy you. Unconfessed sin seeks to destroy you. 
In verse 8, we see how Cain responds when God convicts him of his sin. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and he killed him. Cain didn't deal with it. Cain had jealousy towards his brother, Abel. The scriptures tells us that in John, 1 John three twelve, It says, we should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds, Cain's own deeds were evil and Abel's brothers righteous. What did Abel do wrong? He was righteous. He was faithful. And all it did was further reveal Cain's wickedness, Cain's sin, Cain's brokenness, Cain's failure. And at that moment, Cain had a decision to make. I either get angry and I get filled with self-righteousness and I, I get resentful towards my brother or I confess my own sin because Abel was not righteous because of his deeds. Abel was righteous because of his promised Redeemer's righteousness. And yet Cain, in his stubbornness of heart, refused to receive it. Refused, and all he did was get resentful and anger. He refused to confess it, repent of it, and throw himself on this God of mercy. John Salhammer points out that the language of Cain's murder, where it says he rose up in the field, is the language from Deuteronomy 19, which describes premeditated murder, where you, it says that anyone who, um, who lies in wait for his neighbor and rises up against him and slays him, it goes on to say that he is, deserves death, the death penalty. It's premeditated murder. And so the idea here is Cain deserves death. The just punishment for his premeditated murder against his righteous brother is death. So what do we see next in verse 9? We see once again the Lord does what the Lord does. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. He comes to Cain and he says in verse 9, Where is Abel your brother? He knew where his brother was. He says, where is he? Talk to me. Confess your sin. Tell me what you did. Not because I don't know, because I already know, but I want you to own it. I want you to own your sin. I want you to deal with it. Similar to what we saw with Adam and Eve when they sinned. The Lord comes walking in the garden. Where are you? What have you done? Why did you do this? Where is Abel? What does Cain do? Surely Cain at this moment says, you're right. I should have repented of that sin. I should have confessed it. I should have admitted it. And I didn't. And now I've sinned terribly. I've killed my brother. What does Cain do? He said, where's Abel? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? How many of you have used that verse to say you are not your brother's keeper? You are quoting Cain who killed his brother. That is misuse of scripture. The answer is yes, you are your brother's keeper. That is the key question of the text. The whole point here is Cain. God created you to be your brother's keeper and you killed him. Own it. Confess it. 
And Cain's denying it. And he's blaming. And he's hiding. Am I my brother's keeper? Why are you asking me about Abel? Why don't you go find Abel? We see the hardness of Cain's heart. We see why God said, don't come up in here and throw me some offering. You think the offering is what I need? You think I needed some grain? Oh, it's hungry. Bring me some grain. Really? God says, I don't want your religion. I want you. Religion is an outgrowth of me having captivated your heart, the Lord says. So he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. A church should be a place of brother keepers. That's what this is. At least we're not in fancy suits. At least we're in blue jeans mostly. So at least we kind of get the idea that our nice clothes don't, don't make God happy with us. That we're not here to put on airs. God doesn't want us to, to, to treat each other like garbage throughout the week and then come in here and sing a song and act like it's all good. God says, what you're doing in here needs to be just an overflow of my blessings in your life that you have been so captivated by my grace covering your sin that you sing and you give and you serve and you sacrifice and you understand as a fallen sinful person that every single person in this room and I'm the chief sinner every one of us is sinners and God in this creation account says, I've given you one another to be your brother's keeper. You are worship partners. If you're married, the spouse is a worship partner. In community, your friends are worship partners. We are our brother's keeper. The church is to be the most humble, admitting our sin, throwing ourselves on the mercies of God, and so moved by his grace that we serve, we give, we sing. We have a long way to go as a church in this area. Everything in our culture works against this. Our culture tells us it's not polite to talk about your sin. Well, it's the right thing to do according to God. We are our brother's keeper. If you are a wicked sinner like Cain, we want you here. But we don't stay there. We want to remind you constantly that throw yourself on the grace of God and he will change you. He will lead you away from that sin. But that's what this is all about. It's not about phony religion. It's about God having our hearts because we've been grasped by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 10 and following, we see the consequences of sin. It's just devastating. Verse 10, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed. God was blessing, and now they are cursed 
from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground now, instead of it being bountiful harvest where you're just enjoying the fruit of God's labor, now it says you shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive. Instead of being in the community of God's people, now you're a fugitive wandering on the earth. So here we see the devastating effects of sin. Sin reverses the blessings of God. All that was set up before chapter 3, now we're seeing it being reversed because of sin. Before sin, God was making the land productive. Now the harvest will not be there. This is a death sentence for Cain. Lesson three from Cain, sin is devastating. Sin is devastating. There's no way to make it pretty. It is seeking to destroy you. You may feel like it's giving you something. You may feel like it's worth it. You may feel like you're getting away with it. You may feel like you got a better plan, but I'm telling you, it's a lion being raised to one day devour you. Sin is devastating. Cain says in verse 13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. I am separated from God. I am separated from God's people. I will be a fugitive. I have lost my purpose. I will be a wanderer on this earth. The wages of sin is death. Whoever finds me will kill me. Cain got it right. I believe this is Cain's repentance. Not everybody agrees, but I believe this is Cain's repentance. He realizes the wages of sin is death. It's destroying my life. I can't take the punishment. God's revealed to me how wicked I am. I got nowhere else to turn. I've lost it all. Now, how do you respond to someone in that position in life? What do you say to them? Well, it's too late. You're just trying to get out of the punishment. What does God say? The Lord said to him, not so, not so. My grace is sufficient for you. Even at that point, in the lowest point of your life, my grace is sufficient for you. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's mine. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark of protection on Cain, lest anyone found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Numbers 35 talks about later God providing something called cities of refuge, where the blood avenger is coming after a guilty 
manslayer. And the only place of refuge for the guilty murderer is to go to a city of refuge. It's a place of God's grace and protection so that the laws of justice can play out and this world not be filled with just more bloodshed and more bloodshed. I believe John Selhammer is right when he says the sign of Cain is this city that we see in the next verses. This is a city of refuge because Cain repented of his sin. He threw himself on the mercies of God and God restored him and blessed him even as his deathbed conversion. And so you see in verse 17 through 24, God blesses undeserving Cain with a people. God starts to restore him. He restores him to a people. When he says, I'm a fugitive, I have no people because of my sin, God says, let me give you a people. And he says, I have no culture, no life, it's over, and we see God restoring Cain, undeserving Cain. And we see in verse 20, his people build a society with agriculture. This is Cain who said, God said, the ground is cursed to you. It won't yield anything for you. He repented and now we see in verse 20, he will have agriculture. In verse 21, there will be music and arts. Verse 22, there will be industry. And verse 23, there will be a legal system of justice. Lamech says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And then he says, but if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. The idea seems to be, I killed in self-defense. God is a just God. He has provided a just society. He will take care of me. So this brings us to our fourth lesson from the life of Cain. God will always receive a repentant sinner. God will always receive a repentant sinner. It is never too late as long as you have breath in your life. You can repent and you can cast your sin on Jesus. You can repent and say, I am a sinner and I need the grace of Jesus Christ in my life. Finally, in verse 25, there's a very important shift that happens. Abel is dead. Cain's sons become the foundation of the new world after the fall. And the focus shifts off of Cain to a new son who is born. And it's said this son is born in place of Abel. And his name is Seth. Look at verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, and listen to the words, it's very different than what she said in verse 1. This time she says, God has appointed for me another offspring. Or God has appointed for me a seed or a child instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. And at that time the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So in verse 1, Eve said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, after Cain's repentance, she says, God has appointed for me a seed. So the text makes it clear. Seth is God's chosen seed. In verse 15 of chapter 3, God promised a seed will come who will crush the head of the serpent. And all society would have said, that's Cain. He's the firstborn. He deserves it. And God says, that's not my choice. I choose Seth. 
And through the line of Seth, I will restore a day where the people will call upon the name of the Lord. And this is the theme to watch throughout your scriptures. Who is the chosen seed? Where will the Messiah come from? And here we learn he comes from Seth. And so lesson five from the life of Cain is God makes us true worshipers through his son, Jesus Christ. So I want to challenge you today. I want to invite the band to begin to come in. And as I challenge you, I want you to think about it. If you have never trusted Christ, when you come to worship and God confronts you with your sin, is everyone listening? God confronts you with your sin. What do you do? That's the difference between Cain and Abel. Do you suppress that? Do you get angry at God or do you confess it and throw yourself on the mercies of God to be made righteous? Trust Jesus. The reason to come here is to say, thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. The reason to worship and to give and to serve and to sacrifice is to say, thank you, God, for serving me and sacrificing your son for me. Now, let me get a little more personal to Norris Ferry Community Church. I love you, and I think you're amazing. But if you've ever called Kevin, we'll see and said, I can't, I don't know who you are. I know this happens. But if you call Kevin and say, I can't be in community group with that person, that's Cain. That's sin. How dare you say you can't be in group with a person that is saved by grace just like you. Repent of that sin before it devours you and this church by God's grace. Father God, we pray for your help. We pray for your grace. May we see ourselves as sinners saved by grace. And when someone offends us, that we understand our offense against you. And as Matthew says, may we not come in here as posers. Matthew says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. For Lord... You do not desire an offering just for the sake of offering. You want us first. So, Lord, make us holy, righteous people. Forgive us of our sins that we may offer you truly from hearts of trusting obedience. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.